First John chapter 2 speaks to us about two kinds of love. Now, when you hear that, the first thing that might come to your mind is, wait a minute, preacher. I thought the Bible talked about agape love and phileo love and eros love. And it also talked about a storge love. Storge love is a, a relational love between siblings and family members. But that's not what I'm talking about tonight. Because the word that's for love that's being used here in verse, verse 15 is the same word for love that is used earlier in the chapter. It's agape love. Loving as only God can love. The love I'm referring to tonight is, number one, as we saw a little bit last week, which I'll probably preach again when I get to first chapter 4, a little, bit, a little bit more explanatory. But in the beginning of 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we see the love that God honors. The love that God honors. Look at, look at that passage with me again tonight. He talks about in verse 7, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness passed, the true light now shineth. And he's talking about the commandment we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Leviticus 19.18. John 13, verses 34 and 35. There's a love that God honors. But there's a second kind of love in this chapter, and that's found in verse 15, the love that God hates. The love that God hates. The Christian life, we have three spiritual enemies. Satan, our flesh, the world. That sounds so common. You get to our discipleship series, letter E. The letter E is uh, the, the letter for enemy. It speaks about our spiritual warfare. As a new Christian, a new Christian learns that our enemy is Satan and the flesh and the world. And we can recite that. But the truth is, if we go beneath the surface, I think very few Christians can, can really explain and articulate what does it really mean that Satan is my enemy? What does it really mean that the flesh is my enemy? What does it really mean that the world is our enemy? And we think about the world, we think about its popularity its direction, its lure into prosperity, its programs, its philosophy. And although tonight is probably a good time to talk about the Christian and the worldview, we should, the biblical worldview, really tonight that's not what we're going to look at. Tonight we're going to look at the Christian in the world. The Christian in the world. Jesus said we're to be in the world, but not to be of the world. I want you to see four things tonight in our study. Number one, would you notice in verses 12 to 14, would you notice we see an assembled company? An assembled company. Now, John is writing to the church at Ephesus. And as he writes to them, he uses terminology to describe the different levels of spiritual maturity in the church. And that's important for us tonight. That's important for us because we have to remember that John pastored this church for a period of time. John had a good pastor's heart. He learned from the Lord Jesus Christ the different dimensions, the different degrees of spiritual maturity inside the church. And so he's writing to them because as we get to verses 15 to 17, John is very, very concerned about the influence of the world on the lives of the Christians. And he's addressing three categories, three areas of spiritual maturity in the church. Notice, first of all, he addresses them as little children. He says in verese 12, "I write unto you little children." Now you might write, you want to write this in the margin of your Bible there in verse 12. The word being used for little children there is the word technia, T-E-K-N-I-A. Technia or technia. It's a general address. 
It's a term of affection that a teacher in those days used for groups of people that they taught and they and they, that were their followers. It was kind of a master discipleship, teacher discipleship mind. And when he used this term, he used that, that term also in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children. He was their spiritual father. He used this term to address the entire congregation. He, when he wanted to just address them as a whole, he said he saw, spoke to them as my little children. Notice here in verse 12, he had a specific reason. He said, my, write into congregation. I run into you, church. I run into you, little children, because your names, your, your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. He had to remind them where they were in Jesus Christ. You know, in a large congregation, we have those who are very secure about their faith in Jesus Christ, and some of their upbringing contributes to their, their security. And being grounded properly in discipleship helps contribute to their security. But there are others in the church who have, perhaps are just a little bit unsure about themselves. They're unsure about whether they're really saved. And that's why First John was written. And, and you know, as he spends, we get to chapter 5, he reinforces the, our eternal security there. But there's some who come through the church, they grow up and they're a little bit nervous to tell someone or confide in someone that they're not sure about their eternal security. They're afraid that they can lose their salvation. And you know, for some of us who are very secure in that, we must be very sensitive to those who are not secure in that because it is a real problem. Their, 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 their mind or their thoughts are ravaged at nighttime as they go to sleep. If I die in my sleep, will I go to heaven? And the Bible gives us that answer there that he that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son of God has not life. And these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And, you know, we try to help encourage new believers to memorize the Scripture and all the verses dealing with eternal security. But there is a time and place where some people are very insecure about that. And John wrote to them here in verse 12 as a congregation's whole. First of all, he didn't want them thinking that they were bad people and that God could not forgive them their sins. He wanted them to know, listen, I write into you little children because your sins are forgiven you. And he says, God puts his very name on the line. He says, for his name's sake. He reminds them, just as we saw today in Isaiah 43, 25, that God blots out our transgressions and our sins and iniquities. He remembers them no more. I mean, you know, one of the most important things for us to grasp as a believer in Jesus Christ is the forgiveness of our sins. What a terrible thing that if you're in a, in a marriage, or you have children, and you have parents, to live with this dark cloud over your life of unforgiveness, that you're not forgiven, that dirty old dirt, you know, dirt comes back again and comes back again and comes back again and comes back again. I mean, it's a terrible feeling to know that you've not been forgiven. And God wanted them to know through the Apostle John. He says, I'm writing to the congregation as a whole, your sins are forgiven. But there's a second category. He also uses the word little children in a different way. Look at a little bit later on there. Look at verse 13. He says later on in verse 13, I'm writing to little children because you've known the Father. Now he's not using the word technia there. He's using the word paideia. And there in verse 13, he's talking about those who are immature in the faith. They were in the congregation, they'd been under preaching, but they were not growing in the Lord. They were immature in the faith. They could only grasp the milk of the Word and not the meat of the Word. They couldn't discern good from evil. They didn't know right from wrong. They couldn't discern a false teacher from a, from a, from a true teacher. And, he, and he's going to get into that later on. He's going to get into about spiritual seduction later on there, about the Antichrist that were in their time. But he's talking to them, and he's using the word paideia there in verse 13, to talk about the fact that some of them, they knew the Father, they knew God, but they had a lot of growing to do. 
Listen, when we have a lot of growing to do, we must understand that we're very vulnerable as Christians. We're vulnerable to satanic attack. The Bible says over in 1 Peter chapter 5 that God was, uh, Peter was warning the believers there about Satan being our adversary, the devil. And he speaks about him as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Lions and predators, they always look for the young and they always look for the innocent. They always look for those who are by themselves. They always look for those who stray off. And he's talking about these little children, these paideia, these immature ones who are not grounded in the faith. They could only absorb the milk of the word. And if John got any deeper, they couldn't absorb that. And they were very vulnerable to satanic attack. Let me remind you today that it can be very well spoken that for those watching tonight and those here in the congregation, there are some who are very immature in the faith. You might be in church, you might carry a Bible, but your Bible is not really, you're not really solid on the word of God and you're not into the meat of the word of God. And as a result of that, you're someone who's very vulnerable to attack. Remember, he's dressing the whole congregation. He goes from the word tecti and the word uh, paideia, and he lotus here. He goes down a little bit further, and he talks about the fathers. He says in verse 13, I write unto you fathers because you've known him that is from the beginning. And there again in verse 14, he says, I have written unto you fathers because you've known him from the beginning. Fathers is referring to those men who got saved in the early days of the church. They, the church had been around for many years. The church is at least 30 years old, maybe 35 years old. These were the converts from the very beginning who had been nurtured, who had been strengthened. These are the men who would be, if you would, the pillars of the church. And perhaps they may have been deacons in the church and they were teachers in the church. And these are men who were supposed to be uh, the, spiritual, the spiritual backbone and fortitude of the church. And he says, I've written unto you fathers because you've known him from the beginning. He's talking about men who've been adamant and who've been stable in their faith. They've been, they've been, they've, they're, they're sure in their faith. They're steadfast in their faith. They're unmovable in their faith. They're looked to by the congregation as being someone who's stable there. And there's something to be said in the congregation for people to stick around church. Amen. Because you stick around church, there's stability there. That tells a younger person, wow, that person's been here this long and they're still serving God and they've been here this long and they still love the Lord and they've been here this long and they're strong in the faith. And, you know, it says something to a new believer when they come in, they say, well, I want to be just like that Christian. I want to have the stability of that person. I want to have the joy of the Lord like that person. I want to bear the fruit of the Spirit as that person there. And I say to you today, as we think about our church as 21 years old, thank God for those men. And those ladies who've been here from the very beginning. Thank God for those who've been saved over the years. They've gotten their feet very deep. And they're grounded in Jesus Christ. And they're growing in the Lord. And they're solid in their faith. And now they're teachers. And being used of God in a special way. Let me tell you something. He's talking to fathers. But he's saying, I'm writing to fathers because even though you may be sure what I'm going to deal with next, what affects the children, affects the young men, will affect you also there too. Then he writes into what he calls the young men. I got pretty excited when I was looking, looking into this a little bit there. He's describing that place of spiritual maturity where there's vibrancy, lots of involvement, lots of fire, you know, the vigor of youth, the enthusiasm, excitement of staying up late and working long. I just want to put a plug and say, you know, let's be thankful tonight for our men who work in the live stream and take, take care of all of our, uh, that, that aspect of our church. Amen? 
Because I tell you, those guys are working around the clock. They're stretched very, very thin. We're thinking through and planning out just kind of how we're going to phase out some thing, phase in some things over the next several months there. And uh, talking with our, our men, I'm just concerned that we're going to need some of our AV guys involved, but they're stretched already thin. Hey, some guys don't know this, but some of our AV guys are here many, many times troubleshooting or dealing with things or installing things up to midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning. And then they go back to their, you're up at 6 o'clock to get back to their job at 7 o'clock in the morning because they've got to take care of their regular sector job. I mean, thank God for some of these guys are here Monday through Friday dealing with these things. They don't talk about it. They don't complain about it, but they're here serving God. Hey, by the way, thank God for some of our teachers who stay up late at night and they're up to 2 o'clock in the morning and they're working, laboring in the Word and preparing so they can have a decent Sunday school lesson for our classes. I mean, thank God tonight for those who have that vigor, of that, that vigor, the youthful vigor and enthusiasm, excitement about serving God. I mean, there's something to be said about that. And here's what John says here. He says in verse 13, I write unto you, young men, those men who are fervent for God and serving the Lord, he says, because you've overcome the wicked one. You've demonstrated that you've got the word of God in your heart. And that's what he says later on in verse 14. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abideth in you. Now, let me tell you tonight, if we're going to have a place of spiritual maturity for God to be glorified and for our church to be strong, we need to embody the spirit of the young men who, have, who are strong in the word of God and strong in the faith and strong in Christ. And it's kind of like Joshua. Joshua, the first time we find Joshua mentioned in the Bible, he's strong in the Lord, and he's a young man, he's got the youth, he's got the vigor of youth, and he's ready to fight, he's ready to respond. I mean, there's something to be said about having the spirit and the attitude of a young man in the church there. We may be many years old sometime, but we can have that vigor of youth, and we can have the enthusiasm, excitement about serving Jesus Christ there. He's talking about a congregation here. Every congregation has different levels of maturity. Every congregation has children that are technia and children that are paideas and fathers, men who've been there from the beginning and they're the bedrock of the church. And then every church has young men who are strong in the Lord and the power of His might. And, you know, it's just to me, it's just encouraging watching a lot of, especially in the last few years, a lot of our young men in the Lord, those who've been here for a while and those who are coming into the church and they're just getting into the Word of God and they're getting grounded in the Lord and they're getting there. Now these men are becoming teachers and are involved and we're, we're nurturing and praying over them for areas of responsibility to help take the church to new levels. I mean, to me, that's exciting because we can't put men in positions of leadership if they're not like these young men who are strong in the Word of of God and have overcome the wicked one. Listen, if you don't have victory over certain habits in your life and you are not disciplined in your life, you can't lead other people if you're not disciplined. You can't lead other people if you're not strong in the Lord. We can't encourage other people to be strong in the Lord if we're not praying, if we're not in the Word of God. I'm just saying tonight, maybe you're someone this evening that you've gotten, you've lost a little bit of that fervor and lost a little bit of that enthusiasm. And maybe you're someone tonight, you're kind of thinking, well, I'm a little bit tired and let the younger generation, you know, kind of, kind of have a little more responsibility. And that's okay. That's fine. But let me remind you tonight, we should stay fervent in the Lord. And just as I said Wednesday night, we need to be, we need to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor for the Lord is not in vain. You see an assembled company. But notice secondly tonight, John spends three verses, four verses, talking about this congregation. And imagine me, with me tonight if the Apostle John came here at 90 years of age, just standing behind this pulpit... <laughs> And he speaks to us, he says, hey, Heritage Baptist Church, I speak unto you little children, you, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And he speaks to us, he says, I, I, he says I, I've written unto you little, I've I come to you little children, he says, uh, because you've known the Father. 
And he says, I've come unto you, young men, because you're strong and you've overcome the wicked one. And he says, I come unto you, I speak to you fathers because you've known him from the beginning. Now, you, you know if he spoke to us that way, you're thinking, okay, now he's, he's got something to tell us. He's got something to exhort us about. He's got something he wants to admonish us about. He has something that's very important we've got to hear. Because remember, he just transi- he's transitioning from telling about a love that God honors to talking about a love that God hates. And he comes to them, and notice in verses 15 to 17, notice he speaks to them about an adversarial conflict. John uses the word world, notice this, five times in three verses. Now John had been in that church John is described as the disciple who leaned his head on the chest of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that? If you had to ask my opinion of all of the disciples Jesus nurtured, to me, to me now, I'm being being a little subjective here. I think John probably had the most, uh, probably had the most pastoral skills of all the, of the other, of the, of the, of the original eleven. I really do. I think he, he had a shepherd's heart. He had a shepherd's discernment. So did the Apostle Paul. And so did Peter. But I, but I really believe as you look at John, it's just the tenderness in terms of how he writes and yet the firmness associated with it. It was kind of like strength and beauty and, you know, uh, as the Bible talked about in Psalms. And he wanted to get them ready about something that was very disturbing because he'd been away from the church. He'd gone through... Times of, you know, persecution. And he gets some word back about false teachers and Gnosticism and some friction in the church. But he also got word about some things that had insidiously made their way in the church was affecting how the church was conducting itself. So in verses 15 to 17, he speaks about the world. In all of 1 John, he refers to the world 17 times. He doesn't address the church in the world. Let me repeat that again tonight. He's not addressing the church in the world. He's addressing the world in the church. He's addressing the world in the church. And it's not just that church. It's in every church. Let me just come out and publicly tell you something tonight. I might get censored for this. One of the most revolting things about this election that just, that we're, that's still unraveling itself right now is how much of the contemporary Christian movement has contributed to what may be the demise of America. Let me tell you something tonight. You vote for a candidate or a policy that advocates the killing of babies, you've got blood on your hands. I said, you've got blood on your hands. Isaiah, Jeremiah 44. They're dealing with the Valley of Hinnom. And in the Valley of Hinnom, they took their baby, these babies, and they put them in the hands of these, these, these false gods. They burned their babies as sacrifice. I want you to understand that. That was a heathen practice there, to burn those babies. Those were live babies. 
And what they did was to drown out the cries. You go look it up yourself. To drown out the cries of those babies crying. You know what they did? They got the heathen drums out. They started beating the drums. Well, you go to these, you go to these contemporary services. And you go to these rock concerts. You go to these rap places. Hey, the drums have a prominent place there. They played those drums loud enough to drown out. Listen, the music of the contemporary church, the movement of the contemporary church is drowning out the cries of the babies that are being put to death. And you've got leading evangelical leaders. I can name some names right now that have put their vote. They're cast the wrong way. They're voting for Someone, they say, well, I don't like this guy. I'm voting for this one. But as I said before, you've got to vote based on principle, not based on personality or political preferences. You've got blood on your hands. He wasn't worried about, he wasn't writing, and he, doesn't, and he only says something very brief there. He doesn't say anything about the church and the world. He's dealing with the world inside the church. Every Christian, every church, we have an adversarial conflict with the world. Let me start by saying this tonight. We must step back for a minute. I'm going to get away from the philosophical aspect of it. Just to remind us, the world is still our field. I said the world is still our field. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 38, the field is the world. You say, what's our field? The world. Everybody, everywhere. Amen. Mark 16, 15 says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. I'm saying it tonight, as we look at it, 1 John 4, 14, John said this, he sent G- God sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. I'm saying it tonight, the field is our world. But the, field, the world is all, but I want you to see something else. The world is also our foe. The world is our foe. Think with me tonight. Turn with me to 1 John 5.19. Look what John has to say about this. 1 John 5.19. He says, and we know that we are of God. And the whole world lieth in what? What's that tell you? What's that tell you? What's that tell you? The whole world lieth in wickedness. Ephesians 2 2 speaks about our darkened nature. He talks about the course of this world, its philosophy, its direction, its path. In John 15, verses 18 to 19, as Jesus was giving that fireside chat in the upper room, he told those disciples there, the world hates you. Galatians 1, 4, as he opens up writing to those Galatian believers there, and if you have to just look on that map and think about where he wrote to, he talks about this present evil world. Beloved, if you haven't figured this out, this is a wicked world. This is an evil world we live in. Satan is the prince of this world, John 14, 30. Satan is the god of this world. Listen, the mastermind behind, behind all the evil is the god of this world. Now, when that says that, that doesn't mean he's greater than God. It just means when God kicked him out of heaven, he was banished out of heaven, he now is roaming here. He's not in hell. He's not in hell. He's roaming this world. He's the God of this world. And listen, as we see things unfold in this world, we're getting a good idea of what it means that spiritual wickedness in high places world is our foe. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. 
Look at how he's using the media. It's the power of the air. COVID-19, it's airborne, the power of the air. Yeah. James 4, 4 says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. The world is our enemy. Now, the world's our field, but the world's our foe. Notice the world and its fashions. Notice the world and its fashion. Go back to 1 John 2. Fashion is a word that he uses in another verse of Scripture that describes how the world pulls its victims away. And I use the word victims. You and I are prey. The world is the predator. Look at his description in verse 16. Notice this, all that is in the world, not some of what's in the world, all that is in the world, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, what appeals to your desires, basic desires, base desires, beastly desires, lusts, cravings. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, what appeals to the eye gate. You see it and it stirs you. The pride of life, the appeal to how you'll benefit from this. And I wrote down in my notes this, this thought here. The world works through our vision, through our veracity, that is our appetite, and through vanity. The world works through our vision, our veracity, and our vanity, the pride of life. Now go with me to Genesis chapter 3. Notice this here. Go to Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. I don't want to have you jumping around, but you need to see this. And here in Genesis chapter 3, we see the world in motion, the world at work, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, looking at this tonight is kind of like um, getting your blood test results back. Amen? You get your blood test results back. They help you understand everything. They tell you, they tell you on your blood test results, you know what I'm talking about there, whether you're in range or out of range, right? That's what they're doing there, okay? And so as we look at Genesis chapter 3, it's like your blood test results. It's going to tell you what is, what, how the world works. It's going to tell you right there. It's going to help you see how it works. And so we see the temptation that Satan did, gave to Eve. And in verse 4 it says, And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. Now that was a lie. God said, If you eat of that tree, just told Adam, God said, If you eat of that tree, you're going to die. Now granted, the thought of dying... The cause of dying was unknown to them. Nobody had ever died. What does it mean to die? What do, you mean, what do you mean no brain activity? What do you mean I stop breathing? What do you mean there's corruption in the center? What do you mean by that? And so Satan says, hey, hey, no, 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 no. God's not telling you the truth. You eat that fruit, you're not going to die. And he goes on by saying, verse 5, For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, 
And notice this, and ye shall be as gods. Now, the New Age movement began right there. We're in a New Age society. The queen of heaven now is feminism. Think about that. You shall be as gods. That's what humanism says. Humanism says there is no God. You're God. You're getting better and better and better. You're becoming a God. Humanism, which is, which is an outflow of evolution and anthropology. And the New Age movement says you should become as gods. That's why, that's why Hinduism appeals them, because you come back in another life as some other, some other form, as some other God. But notice what he says here. He says, you should be as gods. Now, they, they, they're thinking, wow, you mean we're going to just be like God? But he said gods. Supplanting God. Replacing God. In other words, God, we don't need you telling us what to do. Uh, God, we're going to be on the same platform as you. And so they said here, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. They already knew what good and evil was. God already told them what good and evil was. He said, eat of that treat, that's evil, amen? He's messing with their heads. Notice now how worldliness creeps in. Look at verse 6. The woman saw lust of the eyes, that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh. And that it was pleasant to the eyes. And he reinforces, it came by the eye gate, by the lust of the eyes. And a tree to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. She saw that. Now it's all working there. Watch that chemistry. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That chemistry is all worked together. It's blended together. It's amalgamated itself together. And it started working. The Bible says it moved her. Listen, go back to James chapter 1. He defines for us how sin works. Let no man say when he's tempted, he's tempted of God, for God cannot tempt, be tempted. Neither tempteth he any man. Don't say God gave you that temptation. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. When lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, it bringeth forth death. Notice what happens here. here here's what happens to Eve. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life was working there. And she thought for a moment, man, we're going to just be like gods. We're going to be just like God. We're going to be as wise as God. She's, the Bible says she took of the fruit thereof. She did eat. And she gave to her husband. And he did eat. The world slew them. It fascinated. Then it assassinated. Matthew 4, 8, when Jesus was tempted, remember that? Remember that? Nod your head just so I know you're with me. Okay. What did he show, what did he show Jesus? The kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the world. Hey, if he tempted Jesus with worldliness, don't you think he'll tempt you and me with worldliness? The kingdoms of this world. We will be as gods. We will be as gods. Matthew 13, 38, he talks about the cares of this world. Hey, beloved, beloved, we're in an adversarial conflict. There's a fact, the cares of this world. Listen, the good seed of the Word of God is sown among thorns. And as the seed grows up, the thorns grow with them. The thorns choke it off. Listen, the cares of this world choke off what the Word of God is trying to do. Hey, there's more than one Christian that's been choked off, that's been strangled, where the Word of God has been choked and strangled their life. And what could have been an effective Christian? And what could have been a productive Christian? And what could have been a successful Christian? And what could have been a successful preacher in the eyes of God? They, the Word of God was choked off in their life, and they died. Titus 2.12 speaks about worldly lusts. 
The world is fashioned. Listen, it promises peace. This is what Jesus said. This world's peace can't satisfy you. He said, in the world you shall have tribulation. He says, the sorrow of this world will break our hearts. We see the fashion of the world. But notice the fallen of the world. The world and its fallen. Go back to verse 15 of chapter 2. The world is our foe. The world has its fashion. The world has its fallen. Look what he says in verse 15. If any man love the world. It's very interesting the word he uses, the same word we get agapeo from. You love the world as you're supposed to love God. Does that make sense? You love the world like you're supposed to love God. If any man loved the world, notice what he says here. The love of the Father is not in him. Now, the world's goal through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes of our life, is to steal God's love out of your heart. Amen. It's trying to steal God's love out of you. It's trying to take the Father's love for you out of your heart. It, worldliness is trying to supplant God's influence in the life of a believer. Now listen tonight. God doesn't hate you. And God doesn't want, doesn't, that doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to have an iPhone or whatever like that. What he's saying here is when all those things are possessing us and controlling us there. Now just think with me for a minute. Just think with me for a minute. Think of the world and its fallen. Elimelech fell. Elimelech fell. Remember that? Ruth chapter 1. Elimelech, my God is my king. That's what his name means. A famine came into the land. And he heard there was bread and, and food and jobs down in Moab. Moab's a picture of the world. The Bible says he went down to Moab. He fell. Listen to this, 2 Kings seventeen fifteen about Israel and Judah. Listen to what it says here. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers. Now, I want you to think with me for a minute. They rejected the Abrahamic covenant. They rejected the, the, they rejected the Davidic covenant. They rejected the covenants of God. Now, God's covenants were not meant to be broken. I mean, God gave them a covenant. Of, he, he cast a salt as a, to seal the covenant. He had the cutting of the covenant to seal the covenant. They rejected the covenants of God. They were saying, we don't need Jesus as our Savior. It's kind of like what we saw in Isaiah this morning. They said, we're tired of God. And so it says here, they rejected his statutes, his covenants that he made with their fathers. Notice this. And his testimonies, which he testified against them. And listen to this. This is worldliness. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them concerning the Lord had charged them that they should not do like unto them. They followed the heathen around them, the nations, the ungodly, the pagans that were around them. The Bible says in Luke 16, 13, that the prodigal took his inheritance and he went into a far country. He went into the world. But perhaps one of the most tragic verses of all the scripture about the world has fallen is there in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, as Paul wrote with a broken heart and tears coming down his eyes and sobbing in his soul about a colleague he had, a fellow soul winner, a fellow preacher, a fellow servant of God, a fellow servant of God who fell away from the Lord. And the Bible says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and he's departed to Thessalonica. Listen, we see the world has fallen. He describes his colleague Demas at the end of where Paul about before Paul was about to be headed. He says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Well, that's 180 degrees different from everything he said about Demas there in Colossians and what he said about him in Philemon. His love for the world took him away from the ministry. 
His love from the world took him away from God. His love from the world took him away from Paul. He loved this present evil world. The world thrills, but then it kills. It fascinates, and then it assassinates. We see the adversarial conflict, but notice we see another thing. Notice in verse 17, 16, 17, we see an adamant command. Adamant command. Actually, verse 15, excuse me. Verse 15, we have a command. Now, before we look at it, I want you to look with me verse 17 and see the reality about this command. In verse 17, he said, and the world passeth away. It's transient. It's temporary. Passed away, we use that term to describe death. It's not going to be here forever. You know what he's saying? The world is a fad. It's one of the contemporary Christian movement and all that kind of stuff. It's a fad. It's a fad. It's a marking scheme. The world passes away and the lust thereof. It's always a new concept, always a new fashion, always a new gimmick, always a new author, always a new merchandise. The buzzword among new younger preachers going up today is that we, we, we believe that we must have expository preaching. Well, what do you think we've had for all these years? Amen. <laughs> what they're really saying, they want preaching that doesn't, that's spineless. And they want preaching that doesn't have conviction. They want preaching that doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. They want preaching that, that, that soothes people's minds, that tickles the ears. What, what Paul talked about there. Paul said, preach your word, be used in a season, out of season. He said, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine and they will heap themselves, teachers having itching ears. There's a reality to this command. But notice we have a responsibility in this command. Love not the world. That's a command. It's not a consideration. Amen? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. It's a command. Love not the world. He says, don't get yourself where, where the pull of the world, you're in love with it. Where the love you're supposed to have for God is being pulled away, and instead you have a love for the things of the world. Now, I'm telling you tonight, we have a lot of needs. So don't get me wrong. You're going to think, well, pastor's telling us to be ascetic. I'm not telling you to be ascetic. And to be a monk. Because you've got to take care. Listen, life still goes on. It doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter who's in Congress. you still got to take care of your life. You still got to put food on the table and clothes on your clothes on your body. And you've got to get your kids through school and you've got to take care of those needs. And you've got to make sure you're prudent enough to save money so that one day when you get a little bit older that, that uh, you're not dependent upon the government because the government may not be able to take care of you. You've got to be able to take care of you. You've got to be prudent about things. You've got to take care of certain things. You've got to, uh, man, you've got to take care of your wives. You've got to make sure that your wife is adequately cared for. If something happens, you pre Caesar. I mean, with all those things. Hey, children, you need to get to the place when you get to 18. You need to be thinking about, well, you know what? I, I guess I should go get a job and kind of work my way through some things and show some response responsibility and work my way to things and be, be adept. I mean, I'm not telling you that you should pull away. And I'm not also telling you you should spend all your time at church. I mean, that would be great if you could. I'm not telling you to do that because you've got to still do some things and be productive. But what is he saying here? He says, don't, don't go into a place where you have a romantic relationship with the world. That's what he's saying there. So how do you do it? 
I mean, that's the question that is always asked there. You know, everybody agrees, yeah, love not the world, neither the things in the world. But how do you do that? How do you get to the place when you've got all these things pulling at you? You've got all these pressures there and all of these different demands there. How do you love not the world, neither the things in the world? Let me give you some thoughts about that, how you do that tonight. Well, write this down. Number one, Romans 12, 2, number one, Romans 12, 2 tells us, be not conformed to this world. Don't let the pressures of this world and the changing fads and the fascist world pressure you to become just like it. Now, you know you're worldly if all you talk about is the things of the world. You know you're worldly if you're, you don't have time for God. You know you're worldly if all you're, you're into the merchandising and all the types of things this world offers. You can articulate more about the new, the new features of iPhone 12, the new features about this car and all that. You can articulate more on that than you can about, about 1 John 2.15. He said, well, that's pretty hard. No, that's what he's saying there. The word for love is the same love that you have for God. He says, when you don't love God, listen, either you love God or you love the world. It's one or the other. You can't, you can't, have, your, you can't have, be both, have both there. And so the Bible says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, how do you get transformed by the renewing of your mind? Well, number one, you need to dedicate your life to Jesus Christ. Not a popular subject today. Dedicate my life to Jesus Christ. Give him a piece of paper and I sign my name on the bottom. Let him fill out the blanks and let him have control. Or give him the keys to my life and making sure that he has control of everything. Not very popular, but listen, it's a priority. Not popular, but it's a priority. It doesn't matter. Remember now, he's, still, he's writing to little children, technia. He's writing to little children, paideia. He's writing to fathers. He's writing to young men. You know why? Because they're all struggling with this matter of worldliness. They're all struggling because John got a glimpse. He got, a, he got some insight. What was happening in that church? That church at Ephesus, which was fervent for God and serving the Lord and had a separation from the world. Listen, now this church was gravitating. He wasn't writing about the church in the world. He was writing about the world inside the church. He said, fathers, you've gotten a little bit soft about that. He says, you older men have gotten a little soft about that. And you're kind of just letting things slip by and the world's coming inside the church. And he says, you young men, you are strong and overcome the wicked one. But he says, I'm noticing just in the trending of things that you're following the trending of things. And you're letting trends affect you. Listen, in the Christian life, we are moved by truth and not by trends. I don't get invited to preach in many churches based on that thought there. Because there's a lot of places right now, if you look at this latest scene age we're in, they're letting the trends dictate the church. If you're going to let the trends dictate the church, guess what? The, tr- the world is inside the church. We must safeguard our desires and thoughts so we're not becoming just like the world. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye renewed. Listen, that renewing is day by day. That renewing is in the Word of God. That renewal is in the worship of God. That renewal is spending time in prayer. That renewal is dying to self. Be not conformed to this world, but be renewed by, by the, by, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're, you can't transform yourself. Only the Word of God can transform you. The power of the Spirit there. There must be the dedication of our life. There must be the commitment to the will of God. Number one, we must not be conformed to the world. Number two, look at Titus chapter two. We're going to love not the world. We're going to have what we're going to take this responsibility. Here's what the Bible says. For the grace of God that bring us salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us. Now, the correct application of grace, you, when, you, when you reach somebody or you hear from somebody that's advocating hyper grace. Perverted grace. Well, grace gives me a license to sin. That's what they were doing here. Remember that I talked about that previous weeks. The Bible tells in Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Listen, teaching us, grace is our teacher. Teaching us that denying, 
Denying, that means self-denial. Listen, there must be conformity to the Word of God, not conformity to the Word and the transformation that comes by the renewing of our mind. And there must become a place, and Dr. Brother Davison mentioned this when he preached one of his sermons when he was here recently, the importance of self-denial. You know, there's just, we have to come to the conclusion. There are just some things, there's some fads we don't really need, amen? The denying ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live what? Soberly. Righteously. Godliness present. What you say, well, that's just the Bible. No, that's the Word of God. That's more than exhortation. That's the responsibility, how we're supposed to live. That's, that's how you love not the world. First uh, Corinthians 7.31, Paul, he's dealing, with, you know, he's dealing with marriage and divorce and singlehood and widowhood and all these kind of things and remarriage. He slips in there in chapter 7. You remember our study there. He slips in there about the matter of the world. And in 1 Corinthians 7.31, Paul said this, They that use this world is not, notice, abusing it. Now the word abuse means this, not to an excess, not going overboard, not being too, you know, going just too much excessively there. And then there's something else he gives, a fourth thing he tells us. Look at Colossians 3.2. Would you turn there? Colossians 3.2, please. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. We're not to be conformed to this world. There must be the element of self-denial. Using this world, but not abusing it, not going overboard. But here's how we love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. This is how we follow through with the adamant command. In Colossians 3, 2, this is what he says. Set your affections on things where? Above. Where's that? Where's that? Where's that? Where's that? Set your affections on things above, not things of the earth. For you're dead. Your life is hid with God in Christ Jesus. What's that mean? Love Jesus. Amen. Love Jesus. Love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Love the things of God. Love to serve the Lord. Love to come to church. Love to sing the hymns. Love to hear about people getting saved. Love to give your offerings. Love to give your tithe. Love to go soul winning. Love to give out a track. Love to pray for missionaries. Love to come to church. Love to get involved. Loving Jesus. Amen? Well, I think I'm just going to sit around. And do what? He says, set your affections on things above, not things of the earth. For your dead and your life is hit with Christ's God. Hey, Paul said this, this, he said it this way in Galatians 6, 14. The world is crucified unto me. The enemy command is love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. We see an assembled company. We see an adversarial conflict. We see the adamant command, but I want you to see one last thing tonight. We're done. This is the best part of it. This is where we get encouraged. Would you notice all of us, all of us are advantaged conquerors? Amen. Advantaged conquerors. Look at 1 John 5, 4. We are advantaged conquerors. Pastor, it's hard to deal with the world. No, it's not. When you got saved, you were saved as a conqueror. Amen. For whatsoever is born of God. Are you born again? Are you born again? Are you born of God? Are you God's seed? 
Is his love dwelling in you? Whatsoever is born of God, he says this, overcomes the world. Period. Period. You belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to you. You've overcome the world. And this is the faith that overcometh the world. This is the, this is the victory that overcometh the world. Even our faith. You're advantaged conquerors. I want you to see a couple of things that were done. Number one, I want you to see how God enables us to conquer the world, worldliness in our lives, and how we have to conquer worldliness in our church. Notice this, first of all, we have our intercessor's requests. Jesus is our intercessor, who's holy, harmless, separate from sinners. Who's our great intercessor in heaven. This is what he prayed in John 17, 15. And I can't help but believe he's praying that right now. He prayed this in John 17, 15. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou, that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. You know what God says? Jesus, God says? Jesus said this. Listen, I want you to stay in the world, but I don't want you to get the world out of you. He says, I'm not worried about the church in the world. I'm more concerned about the world inside the church. So he says, you know what? You need somebody praying for you. You need somebody undergirding you. I'm thankful for I got a good preacher friend down in Southern California, down in the Long Beach area sent me a message yesterday. He said, Brother Fong, and he gave me his name, and uh, some of our staff, we went down there for a conference that I preached at a, few, uh, a couple years ago or so, and he sent me a message yesterday. He said, Brother Fong, I just think about you. I want you to know I love you. I just want you to know I spent some time in prayer for you. Thank God when you spend some time for somebody that just gives them a little bit of an edge for that day, that you're as an intercessor, that God is using you to help somebody else. And here's what's happened for you and I. You may feel like you're in this battle against the world all by yourself, and you may feel like the pull of the world is pulling you away from God, but our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. And we've got a Savior in heaven that's praying for you that the world doesn't overcome you. He's praying for you that you're not sifted as wheat. He's praying for you that your faith will be strong. He's praying for you that the world will get out of you. You'll get in the world and make a difference for Jesus Christ there. We have our intercessor's request, but notice our individual reliance in this verse. Faith is how we have victory over the world. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world, we sing. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. How is faith in the victory? Well, we need, we need a model then, don't we? Do we not? I mean, Jesus didn't have a problem with the world because the world could not overcome him. But listen, we need to think about this thing. We need a model against the world. We need a model on how faith can overcome the world. Do we not? We need a biblical model that can show us that you can beat the world, that you can overcome the world, that you can be a Christian in the world without the world being inside the Christian. Now notice with me, if you would, Hebrews eleven we we're done. Hebrews eleven twenty seven. Would you turn there, please? We're we're almost done. Can we overcome the world? Yes. Hebrews eleven twenty seven. Moses is a model for the Christian faith, the believer's faith in overcoming the world. Egypt. Where we find it in the Bible is a picture of the world, just like Moab is a picture of the world. Egypt is a picture of the world. It's allurements, it's fads, it's enticements, it's temptations, it's lust. And he says in Hebrews eleven twenty seven, by faith, not by foolishness, not by education, not by trying to be strong in himself. He said, by faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured to sing him who is invisible. Now, when you take into account verses 24 to 27, Moses overcame the world by faith. Notice, first of all, he forsook Egypt. You know what he did there? 
He had the promise of being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, we find here. He said, no, I don't want to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He said, by faith, when he's come to years, that means when he became a mature adult, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You know, Moses made a decision. He says, you know what? And by the way, if you read over in Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen articulates about the education of Moses and the upbringing of Moses. I mean, Moses was a very well-bred man, education the things of Egypt. And he considered, well, listen, if I, if I don't rock the boat and I just conform to this world, he says, you know what, I'll be second in command to Pharaoh and I'll have all the riches and I'll be set for life and I'll have all these things taken care of me and I'll have people worshiping me and doing all these things. He said, I'll have all these things going for me. I mean, I'll have it made. I mean, he, you talk about having everything given to him on a silver platter, but instead he said, no, I don't. that's not where I want to be. God said I'm supposed to lead these people out of Egypt. God said I, there's a perfect will God has for me and he's considered there was that the will of God was bigger than the wealth of this world and he considered that doing the will of God was greater than following what the devil wanted him to do. And so he told Pharaoh and his daughter, he said, listen, I can't be your son. I can't be your child. You don't owe me. God owns me. And listen, we need to get the place of realizing that the first step in overcoming the world, if our faith is going to be strong, we've got to be like a Moses. My faith, he forsook Egypt. Now listen, some, there are hundreds and hundreds of Christians in this church and in churches like this where our feet are so far into the world and we're so, we're so, if you would, immersed into the world that we're at the place that we don't even know what the word forsake means we've got to get out of that water we've got to get out of that place instead of going in the direction of the world we need to turn our back against the world and have set our direction towards the lord jesus christ and as we set our direction to the lord jesus christ we can say take the world but you give me jesus he said goodbye world goodbye you're struggling about whether you should be a preacher you're struggling whether or not you should be in the ministry i'll tell you why you're struggling because you haven't forsaken the world you're struggling about why I can't deal with this temptation, why I can't overcome it. Because you haven't forsaken the world. You're struggling about my balancing, the so-called balancing of my time between church and responsibility. I'll tell you why it's a problem for you to balance. Because you haven't forsaken the world. Goodbye, world. Goodbye. He forsook Egypt, but notice something else in verse 27. In doing so, he incurred the wrath of the king. We must forsake by faith. We must be fearless by faith. You make a decision tonight. You make a decision tonight to be not conformed to this world. You're going to get the devil pretty ticked off at you. I said you're going to get the devil pretty ticked off at you. The wrath of the king. What do you mean you don't want my riches? What do you mean you don't want the kingdoms of this world? What do you mean that, that, that the, the cares of this world? Don't you realize? You know, the devil wants the cares of this world to choke off the word of God in your life. You want to get the devil ticked off? You want to be the scorn of man? You want your family angry at you? You want your family to cut you off? You forsake Egypt and watch what happens. He was fearless by faith. He had fortitude by faith. Listen, Moses had to flee and get out of Egypt because he was rejected even by his peers. And the Bible says here in verse 27, it says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Notice, for he endured. 
Now listen, it's going to be tough. I'm going to tell you right now. If you decide tonight you're going to forsake this world, if you decide tonight you're going to live for Jesus Christ, you're going to decide tonight this world is not going to be your God, you're going to decide tonight to come alongside your pastor, stand here, that we're going to be a church in the world, but we don't want the world inside the church. I'm going to tell you right now tonight, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And you're going to have, you're going to have people, you're going to, you're going to lose some friends in the church, and you're going to lose friends outside the church. You're going, to lose, you're going to find out who your real friends are. Just like some friends of mine told me recently, after we were working through some things with their family members that have come to know Jesus Christ or Savior, the husband came to me, a good friend of mine. He said, Pastor, he said, man, I've just found out who my real friends are right now because some of them who have a different faith, they don't want to even come to this funeral here. I said, you know what? It hurts, but God, God's going to control. God will take care of that. You're going to have to endure. My emotions have raged one way or the other as I've watched this election go, go in different directions here. The verses that God put in my mind immediately. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's the world we're in. You better wake up to it, church. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. You think it's bad now, it's going to get worse. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. And has been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Any fortitude. Oh, churches, we got to go back. We're going to go back to live stream again and we're going to shut down again. I guess I'll just stay home and watch. Why don't you endure and just be in church? Well, you know, they, they, they said that uh, they're going to they're limit the size. They said that the numbers are going up. Why don't you just endure and be in church? Endure. Well, you don't understand. I'm getting pressure from my family. Endure and just walk with God. Well, I'm getting pressure from my friends. Endure and walk with God. Well, the doctor said I shouldn't go out. Why don't you endure and trust God? Endure. He endured as seeing Him who's invisible. And listen, here's our problem. We try to endure in our strength. It doesn't work that way. He endured as seeing Him who's invisible. Now notice this. He forsook by faith. He was fearless by faith. He had fortitude by faith, but he had focus by faith too. If your focus is on the world and your focus is on being uh, on, on whether or not you get compliments or you get or you're condemned by people, you're not going to make it. You've got to get your eyes on Jesus Christ, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And notice if you go back to First John chapter two now. It says, but he that doeth the will of God. Moses was doing the will of God. What if he didn't forsake Egypt? Those Jews would have still been languishing down there in Egypt. What if he didn't trust God for his needs? They'd still be languishing there. What if he was there? What if he stayed there in Egypt and decided, I want to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter? We would have never known Moses. We'd never have the Red Sea incident. We'd never have the rod of God in his hand. We'd never see those victories. I'm not sure to God that we'd even see the Passover unveiled the way that God did it there in, in Exodus chapter. I mean, all of that would be gone. Do you know something tonight? If God's people just realize this, the world passes away. The world is a fad, is passing, but the will of God never changes. The will of God is permanent. The will of God is enduring. The will of God which, which honors God. The will of God what's right before God. Listen, we're scared. We're, you know, we have this fear. God won't take care of you. Who said God won't take care of you? Listen, David said, I've been young and I've been old, but I've never seen God's seed begging bread. 
Well, if I go to Bible college and I do this, that, you know, God, God will take care of you. And you notice here as we read this, it says in verse 17, When the world passes away and the lusts thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. He says doing the will of God. Listen, we need to live the will of God, but we need to do the will of God. Listen, we've got to be all in with the will of God. You can't be in part way. You've got to be all in with the will of God. And listen, Moses was a man who was all in with the will of God. Now watch this. Moses moved the world. Listen to this thought. The men who have moved this world were men that the world could not move. The men that have moved this world were men that the world could not move. Fathers, little children, immature ones, young men. John said here emphatically, the world passes away and the lust thereof. We have an adversarial conflict. We've been given an adamant command. We are advantage conquerors through him that loves us so. Neither you're going to let the world pull you. You're going to turn your back on the world. You're going to forsake Egypt and you're going to go towards the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ. He looked at these fathers. He looked at those young men who were strong. He looked at those paideas, those little children that are immature, that were only on the milk of the word, and thought, man, they're so vulnerable. They're so susceptible to being pulled away by the world. He says, they need help. He had to do with the will of God. God's will is that you have a surrendered life. By the way, God's will is that you get saved tonight if you're not saved, amen? God's will is that you have a surrendered life. God's will is that you have a separated life. God's will is that you have a soldierly life. You say, what does that have to do with things? Well, listen to this. No man that warreth entangle himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. Hey, if you're, you're on the battlefield, and you're worrying about the tinkle, you're worrying about the tinkle of the world, when you should be focusing on the enemy, you're going to get killed. You're going to die on battle. You're going to die in that battle there. The cares of this world. The word of God has been sown and sown and sown and sown. The cares of this world like thorns. Wrapping itself around Christians. And choking the word of God out of their lives. You're feeling choked. You're feeling strangled. I remind you what Hosea said. Break up your fallow ground and sown out among thorns. You're feeling that strangulation. It's because we're not obeying what God's word says in 1 John chapter 2. He's speaking to a whole congregation. Little children. Fathers. Young men. Love not the world. The things that are in the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. Tonight, let's be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Tonight, let's humble ourselves and confess the sin of worldliness. In this Laodicean age, which is rich and increased with goods, and having need of nothing, including the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what even Isaiah was alluding to that. And Isaiah this morning, he said, you've gone to a place where you're weary of me.
By faith forsake Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Enduring is seeing him who is invisible. Take a stand tonight. Let's be a church in the world. But let's not have the world inside the church. Amen. Let's be a church in the world. But not the world inside the church.